if they just want some marketing firm to do different things, there are literally thousands of, of marketing agencies that one could Google and a lot of them can do things cheaply and quickly. If you just want one of those, For sure. Google those. But people know when they're approaching us, they, they know they're attracted to us because we only serve this field. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Today, our guest is Griffin Jones, who's the founder of Fertility Bridge. After seven years of internet marketing across several business categories, Griffin Jones started working with a local fertility clinic in his area. Griffin quickly learned that the infertility community is a tribe of people like no other. Rather than operate with outdated and generic healthcare marketing advice, Griffin began to re-engineer the entire process of how someone dealing with infertility goes on to select their fertility specialist. And for this reason, he founded Fertility Bridge, which is a communications and digital media firm addressing the unique needs and choice factors involved in selecting fertility services. On top of all that, Griffin also is the author of the Fertility Marketing blog and an amazing ebook called The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing. He's a proud sponsor of Resolve, ASRM, which is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, and the Association of Reproductive Managers, ARM. He's also a recovering Buffalo Bills fan, a consummate student of human behavior. So Griffin Jones, welcome to your own show. <laughs> How does yeah. it feel to be on uh, that side of the mic? It feels like I'm probably out of a job now. The, the last thing that I had totally down was being host of this show, <laughs> and I feel like you just ganked it from me, so... Thank you for interviewing Thanks. on my own show, Stephanie Linder. I want to introduce you too. Uh, I'm really yeah, happy. Sure. I'm happy to have this opportunity that, that you would offer to interview me for my own show. But it's sort of a bit of a homecoming for you because you did help get inside reproductive health off the ground. I did. Yeah, it is kind of a full circle. And I remember like the original discussions about this and some of the plans. And I remember you telling me what you were going to do. Like, I'm not just going to do another podcast that talks about patients or advocacy work. And as wonderful as those are, when you were telling me this idea of talking about the business side, I was like, man, that's actually a really good idea. And I know, I mean, I've been in fertility for almost eight years. I worked at a fertility pharmaceutical company. I worked on the tech side. I actually worked for you for a little bit when I was traveling and freelancing, doing some marketing and content writing. Um, and then now I'm actually working for a fertility clinic. So I've seen really like several different sides of the business. So I feel like that lends me to have a really good conversation with you. For the audience, <laughs> I think this is just going to be a therapy session and you're the qualified therapist because you've been in all those corners of the field and you've seen a lot of different sides of the dynamics and the relationships and I think you're qualified yes. to ask the questions and for us to just go down the rabbit hole 
like we do on the show, but I'm excited for it. I am too. And like we did a little bit of an intro talking about how you got into fertility, but like I remember first meeting you at ASRM. I think it was the one in City. And seeing like, first of all, there's not many guys in this fertility space at conferences that are like seemingly 30 and under. And you were wearing bright red pants and like definitely had a unique sense of style. And I was like, I asked Angie Beltzos, I was like, who is that guy? I haven't seen him before. And she's like, oh, he runs a fertility marketing company. And that had to be at like the very, very beginning because I know you guys have been around for like five-ish years. So I'm actually like, I know a little bit of your story about how you got into fertility, but I'm super curious if you could kind of like share with everyone how you got into this side of the business and like where your passion comes from. Because I know every time I've talked to you about the business and fertility, like I can definitely sense how enthusiastic and excited you are about it. Well, we did the same thing in that we quit corporate America and then went and lived in South America. I just had done it a little bit earlier. I was in radio ad sales for five years and then I did just a bit of freelancing with social media marketing in my city. And then I went down to South America. I volunteered and lived at an orphanage. And it was actually from there in Bolivia that I had started the company, but mainly just because I had let almost all of my clients go from freelancing before I went down, except for a couple. One was a LASIK eye surgeon who had referred me to the REI that we ended up working with while I was still in Bolivia, which is where I realized the remote possibilities were open, that this person didn't care that I was in Bolivia. So then why would someone else in the country care that I was in Buffalo when I moved back if I could specialize in what they were doing? But ultimately, just as a, a marketer, I knew that social media or AdWords or SEO are all pretty irrelevant concepts to most business owners unless they're applied to the bottom line of that particular business. So the jeweler doesn't really care what I did for the car dealer. The beverage retailer doesn't care what I did for the jeweler. The LASIK eye surgeon didn't really care what I did for the the beverage retailer and, and all of these categories that I was working with. The REI only sort of cared about the LASIK eye surgeon because they knew each other. But I knew that I needed to focus on one category if I wanted to be really relevant. Everybody's supposed to be the best marketer there is. Why isn't everybody just a billionaire if that's the case? And it's because there's a lack of application in one particular focus. So I knew that that was the case. Then on top of that, I wanted it to be recession resistant. I wanted it to be high growth. Those were the business requirements. I still wasn't sure what it was going to be. I knew it wasn't going to be car dealers. I hated working with them. That is a backwards business that I can't wait. I imagine. I can't wait to drive down whatever the strip is in your suburb, whoever's listening, and just see abandoned after abandoned car dealer in 10 years. I didn't know what it was going to be. Uh, but when I started working with this one fertility center, started seeing people come onto social media saying things like, Dr. So-and-so is the most wonderful person we've ever met. Dr. Such-and-such is the kindest we think of him every Christmas. And they post pictures from the holidays and they post pictures sometimes from the delivery room on the day of delivery. And there was this overwhelming joy that I felt like I was a part of because 
I was the one getting this going. This particular fertility center didn't have any social media presence before. And all of a sudden there were hundreds of people over the course of the months that were commenting and talking with each other in this community mm-hmm. built. And that really blew me away. And too late to make a long story short, but I started reaching out to all of the people that were not having success on their journey after that. I emailed every Resolve support group leader in America. That's how I became friends with Resolve because they emailed me to say, stop doing that. But it was too late because I had already, oh talked, I had already talked to a couple dozen people and I had just told them, listen, I'm a marketer. I'm thinking of starting a business in this field. I don't know anything about your problem. I don't know anything about medicine. I have no background as center biology. And I was just blown away by how much people wanted to talk to me and share with me and made me feel really valued, which if you're a marketer, that's like one rung on the scumbag totem pole in the public's eyes very often, like one rung up from investment banker. And so just to have, and that's not who I am. I'm a person that has to feel useful. And so to have people like really grateful that I would talk to them and want to share with me and felt like what I was doing with it was important. I just decided this is it. Before I even moved back to the United States, I planted my flag in the fertility field. And you decided to go back to Buffalo, which is your hometown? Yeah. Yeah, I moved back yeah. to Buffalo. So uh, by the time I even moved back to the United States, I already had a couple clients in the field. I couldn't have any more than the, the two or three that I had before I moved back because the Bolivian internet was so lousy and it was, I still had my, my volunteer job down there. But when I think I moved back on like midnight on a Saturday morning and 7 a.m. Monday, I was making cold calls and right into it. Man, I've been in sales for a while and cold calling, I give like the most respect for people who could do it well and successfully because that's not for the faint of heart at all. Um, but it worked out. Clearly. It's, it's not the way to sustain a business. I absolutely don't believe this. Part of the reason why I left radio is because that was their MO, which is cold call, cold call. The customer's always wrong. Just force somebody to buy. Don't invest anything into the actual delivery quality value of the service or product. That's why I left radio. But for starting, all of us have to start somewhere. And I'm super sensitive when I meet young people or when I meet people that are starting in our field, I make sure that I just say hello to them a little bit. and I talk to them a little bit, right? Because you never know who is actually bringing it, like who actually is going to be the next particular person. And I know that there are, I imagine that there were people that probably just thought that, you know, maybe I would be gone in a couple months and, or that any given person would, but everybody's got to start somewhere. If you can just help them a little bit, along a successful person is going to be a successful person but if you can be one of those people that just gave them a little bit of a nudge up as opposed to ignoring them i i learned that pretty acutely from my first year or two in the field oh yeah i one of my favorite podcasts besides inside Practice health of course is how i built this by guy raz and there was one about yelp and um max levchin who's one of the founders of 
PayPal gave the guy who was building Yelp like a million dollars. And, you know, Guy Raz was like, that's a lot of money to give someone, of course, for 40% equity. Uh, He's like, yeah, Max really just believes like he just wants people to get together and get their ideas. And he knows we're probably going to fail, but he thinks those failures will help us come up with something else. And I really respect that because it really is so much about the people and believing in them. And you can tell people that are going to be successful, even if maybe their initial idea is not, likely those people will go on to have success in something else. So I like that that's your mantra as well, or at least it seemed that way from what you said. I largely believe in that. I wish I had that risk tolerance and that entrepreneurial talent set that I could put a million dollars against 40% equity for people. But at the very least, I can say hello to people and introduce them and at least give them a little bit of advice. Yeah, of course. I was listening to the podcast that you did with Nicole uh, about EMR. And one of the things you said from a marketing side, you would love if a clinic would bring you in like before they even have a name uh, got me thinking like, how did you come up with a name fertility bridge? Like it makes sense, but I'm sure there's lots of other names. Like, was there any reason or inspiration behind it? In that respect, I pretty much agree with Gary Vaynerchuk that the name really doesn't mean that much. It's funny because I own a, I, I own an agency that does branding and, and creative. And, you know, the things that are important to my creative director is why I hired her because I'm a minimalist in general, but it also does come into my marketing philosophy. In general, I don't think names are important. The reason why I made that comment with Nicole is because there are so many places that have multiple names because let's, there's Smithtown Fertility, but over here there's Smithtown IVF and or there's Smithtown Advanced Reproductive Associates, but across the street there's Smithtown Advanced Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility. You know what I mean? So that that was the reason why I do think for for our field, if I were starting new, I do like some of these newer centers that have names that are completely distinct from names like that. If I were starting brand new for anybody listening, I would not have a name of that older generation name for those reasons. But for me, I could have called it Connect Fertility. I could have called it, you know, Fertility Link or something. It was just, I just knew that the fundamental thing of what we do is that patients are over here, clinics, specialists, that what we'd call, apart from that, we'd also call the industry side, are pretty apart in terms of what they're looking for and what they're expecting. Our job is to bridge that gap. So uh, I think Fertility Bridge does convey the purpose and values of the company, but I also don't think in and of itself it's so important on a name. Or at least in the beginning. Once once you build it, then it is. It's what you make of it. And once people know it, now people say Griffin Fertility Bridge because I hammer, I have hammered even back when it was just me, it's not just me, it's Fertility Bridge. And now that there actually are people in leadership positions and the team is much bigger than now is really Fertility Bridge. But even from the beginning of me getting back off of that plane to the United States, I my mind was always Fertility Bridge and not Griffin is just a freelance marketing consultant. Yeah, I mean, I like names that just tell you exactly what things are so people don't have to overthink it or get confused in any way possible. That kind of leads into my next question. You know, I know a lot about Fertility Bridge. I'm sure half the people listening do, but I think maybe there's a handful of people that don't know much about your company. 
And like I said, I'm, I'm a fan of things that are kind of straight to the point. So if you could kind of like sum up what Fertility Bridge is in whatever way you want, let's say in like 30 seconds-ish, like your, your best elevator pitch, if you will, like what would you, what, how would you summarize Fertility Bridge? Fertility Bridge is a creative agency and new business development marketing firm that helps fertility centers and businesses in the field of reproductive health attract and retain the right patients. Well done. Pretty straightforward. I love it. So you and I were just what joking about, about this because you, you and I yeah. are really plugged into the entrepreneurial community, the very the millennial content yeah. creator, and how we really love this cohort, but also sometimes I think they just get so far up in the clouds. And one of the big trends in that space is to say, don't tell me who you are or even what you do. Tell me who you help. And so I went to an internet marketing conference over the summer that was with these folks, the cool bloggers, the cool YouTubers and influencers. And every person I would talk to, I'd say, when we were talking about what we do, they'd say something like, I help single women find their passion through in-depth analysis. Just just like really abstract explanations. And I I just told people, I own a marketing agency for fertility centers and they got it. <laughs> they understood what I right. did, who I help. Like, so I, I, I think that anything can be taken to an extreme, anything that's the cool zeitgeist or buzzword, or you're very often going to find me having a contrarian opinion of. I hear you. I know that was a good conversation. We actually had uh, the other day outside of this recording, just about this like entrepreneurial community. And I myself spent about two years traveling and freelancing. And as much as I was inspired by it, I also found maybe not to a huge surprise, but a lot of the people just not having anything tangible. Like I think secretly a lot of people are living off maybe some savings that they had saved up prior to traveling or maybe had like a side hustle that was stable, like teaching English, but this entrepreneur, this business that they were actually building, I don't think it was actually in existence. So it's interesting to see you go to, go to things like this, where you probably meet a lot of people with their heads in the clouds, but also, I mean, you have something that you've literally built from the ground up. And we've talked about this before, how you've like never taken, like you've done it all yourself, which I give you the most respect for, because that is, that's the hardest way to do it. Well, thank you very much for that compliment, but you mentioned something that made me think of why else we have bridge in the name is I just feel like that's core to who I am. Politically, I'm very centrist, not a moderate, but I'm a very calculated centrist of which issues and which parts of issues I think are important. If we're at some sort of party and there's a group over here and there's a, there's a group over here, I'm usually the one that can communicate with both of them and and sort of be like an intermediary. I've always been that way. And in our field, one of the biggest gripes that I often have is that we don't think big picture enough from a, from a clinical operations perspective. On this creator content side, one of my biggest criticisms of them is that they don't think measured enough that, or, or tangibly. And I just feel like, you know, when I'm over here with the creator crowd, Oh, here comes the business guy with his like very specific KPIs, putting the damper on creativity. And with our field, I sometimes feel like 
here's the guy with the haircut and the red pants with his crazy ideas. And I just think, I wish that I could have both of you in a room together so you could see how freaking reasonable I am. You are pretty reasonable. I can attest to that. So like when you say marketing company, I mean, there's so many facets to marketing, right? And like, I learned this even more so actually working for a fertility clinic now. When I was on the outside, I was like, oh, marketing is getting new patients. Like that's all I thought about, right? But now it's not only getting the new patients, but it's different events that you have to coordinate, working with the referring providers and making sure they have a good perception of your clinic, making sure your call center is even like saying the right verbiage. Like how, as a fertility marketing company, like how are you guys good at so many different things? Like what are your strategies around that? Prioritize. You have to prioritize. So like, I'm glad that you brought this up because you, you mentioned that you really saw this from the, the clinic side, but you also know from being on the digital side that there's SEO, there's paid Google ads, there's paid social ads. All of a sudden there's a new social ads platform like for using Instagram stories. All of a sudden the way we use those ads change. There's content writing, there's video and a million different platforms for how you distribute, how you host video. There's themed websites, custom built websites. And that's just the peppering of the top of the digital side. You mentioned the things that are on the clinic side. I sometimes have prospective clients come to me and say, hey, what would it be if we wanted everything? And I say, I have no idea. It's tens of millions of dollars. I have no idea. We never do everything, especially you know, when I'm being approached by a single position, 10 person practice. Even with the larger groups, however, there, you can't do everything. So the first thing that we do is we ask, what is the goal? And we have a process for how we flush out what the goal is, because you're talking about all of these different things that have to happen in the, in the center in order to know which ones are the most effective and necessary. We need to know what effective and necessary means against the purpose that it's trying to serve. And very often, this isn't just true for our field. This is true for local businesses. Anyone whose job is not being like the CMO and the different marketing KPIs are their job. But anyone who is a business owner, for example, when they start a marketing effort very often or choose an agency or buy ads or do a campaign, it's very often just to see, well, we heard somebody else did this or we're, we think that we can get this result and we just want, can we just get more patients? Can we get more customers if we're a different kind of business? In our case, it's patients. Ultimately, can we get more money is what the, someone thinks as a business owner. And if the question is that open-ended, it's of course, but what needs to be done in order to do that? So we actually slow people down in order to speed them back up. So we slow people down like by, by, by making sure that the whole leadership team is on board with, this is where we're going as a clinic. Part of the reason why we specialize in one category is so that we can talk about it in these terms. I'm not talking about it in terms of just revenue or profit, but let's talk about same-sex couples. Let's talk about egg freezes. Let's talk about retrievals, new patient visits, what your IVF conversion rate is, what your retention rate is, what, your, what the percentage of patients that you have referred by word of mouth or referred by an MD referral, looking at all of these 
different key performance indicators and then say, where are we trying to go? Then let's put a dollar value on that. And then are we going there? Yes or no. Regardless, if you never talk to Griffin Jones again, or if you never talk to Fertility Bridge again, are you going to go there? Because if the answer is no, then it's not strong enough of a goal for us to get engaged with, but it's also not strong enough of a goal for any business to pursue it. Fertility Bridge, we, I'm pointing to my whiteboard right now, we've got a revenue goal, we've got our employee goal, we've got our profitability goals. The team knows that, I know that, we're agreed. It doesn't matter if we, like something happens in the course of the year, that's still the goal. That's where we're going towards. So then when we get approached by different fertility conferences and they say, hey, do you want to sponsor this? Or uh, we think we're building out our own marketing plan. We're able to make those decisions based on if it's getting that goal. But the first thing that people have to do, Steph, it doesn't take that long, but it does take a couple hours with your team sitting down and agreeing this is where we're going, regardless of what agency you choose, regardless of what campaigns you do, but having the goal as the North Star. That is the first step of the system. I like it. You clearly, like you said, you can be very reasonable. <laughs> it sounds like a very logical, reasonable plan and starting point. And like my, like when you say that, I think about like my current job and the biggest stress I have to imagine with that is like getting everyone that is so busy and inundated with so many things coming at them on a daily basis. Like how do you get them all in the room and get them to agree to be on the same page and stick to that same plan? Like, I feel like you would have to be like partial therapist <laughs> in addition to being a badass marketer. That's no small part of what a good account manager I think is or any good consultant. They're the therapy of helping people get those thoughts out is no small part of it. For anybody who thinks that that's too fifi or too fluffy, there's it will come back as a bigger problem later, I promise. So eventually the other partners, if someone is actually a key stakeholder, at some point they're getting involved. You want them getting involved at seven months when you've been doing something else or a year and a half or wherever it might be and having them want something that is very different from what you have going on in place, or do you want to sit down with everybody and say, okay, this is where we're going. This is who we are allowing to be the singular point of contact. This is how decisions are going to be made. And just brokering those terms in the beginning based on where you all agree that the business will go, as opposed to then having to agree on all sorts of arbitrary decisions that pop their heads up along the way. I mean, I totally agree. And I think in sales, sometimes I know in the past, I've been too afraid to push to get all the right people up front because it is a lot more work, but I've learned the hard way how that comes to bite you in the butt down the road. Like you have to do the work. And if you have to say no to the customer because they're not willing to get everyone in that room, then it's worth it to say no, in my opinion. I don't know if you have a different opinion about that. Oh, there's, there's way more things get that everyone in can collapse the sale. Yeah, it is harder to close the sale if you're trying to get everybody as opposed to if you're just trying to get like a little piece of something and then maybe that maybe the marketing director or the office manager could just get that sign off on. But I don't want happy prospects. That doesn't mean anything to me. I want happy clients. I want people that have worked with me for years to be able to say what they do is really valuable and they have a great process and they're bought in because if 
I can't get someone to buy in in the beginning, I really am not going to be able to help them. That's what people are buying us for if they understand what they need us for is our process. If they just want some marketing firm to do different things, there are literally thousands of, of marketing agencies that one could Google and a lot of them can do things cheaply and quickly. If you just want one of those, for sure. Google those. But people know when they're approaching us, they, they know they're attracted to us because we only serve this field. I do need to slow them down and show them that it's a process though. That yes, it's our process that we built that's unique to this field. And if you do that up front though, if you do the goal first, if you do goal strategy project, after the strategy that's the most effective and then continuous improvement and you don't bundle it all together. It's very organic how the relationship develops, but also you're setting yourself up for success and that's the order that it needs to go through. So if there are people that aren't interested in that in the beginning, it's because they aren't interested in that process and it's just better to flush that out for us and for them. If doing that in the beginning and and not, you know, later. Yeah. I mean, it could genuinely just be bad timing for the clinic or the person. And you'd rather know that now and say, okay, we'll reconnect in six months. Okay. So I remember when we were first actually talking about setting up the podcast and you were saying that you're like, you know, I want to like push the boundaries a little bit, ask really tough questions and like be a little controversial, which I really respected about you. So I want to ask you some questions in which would love your honest answer. Have as I much done as that in your estimate? Have I done that in your estimation? Um, on other podcasts uh, or yeah. push the limits? Um, well, I have not listened to all 20-something, I'll be honest with you, but some of them more than others, for sure. I wouldn't say every single one, though, are, are you guys pushing the boundaries and really asking tough questions? If you like, think I'm being an too example of this, goosey-goosey with somebody, I want you to text me and say, you, you took it too light on me. <laughs> I will. We'll talk after. Part two, part two, we'll talk about it. But like, who, in your opinion, who either a company, like a technology company or a clinic, who is actually doing things the right way, whether or not they're Griffin Jones customer, Fertility Bridge customer or not. But I also want to talk to you about who do you think, who, if you want to be specific or not, like who drives you absolutely insane with the ways that they won't change and what are those ways? So it's kind of a two-part question. Well, the, the answer to that question is probably 75% of the field. So <laughs> if, as long as we're smacking hornets nests right now, let me, let me go, go and do that. <laughs> to the first question, I would like to give some of our clients shout-outs without – I have to be careful in how I do this because – and it won't all be fertility bridge clients, but – I have to be careful about how I do this because I don't talk about anyone's strategy, but I will suffice it to say, right. uh, maybe I won't, maybe I won't say their names, but there's a, a clinic that we work with in Arizona that uh, we just really like the type of people that they are. And they're, you know, they're in a position that most clinics were in where they're not a, a larger clinic where they really could have fought us and been resistant and, given the realities of running a practice that size, they have really been open to just change and updating the practice and serving the current patient demographic and learning new technology and going through that uncomfortable 
sort of learning and uh, you know, my team loves them for it. Their patients love them for it. And so I just think of, of somebody like that. There's another group we work with that, again, I probably shouldn't mention them by name, but if they, if they know who they are, I'm totally fine with that. Is they're a, a larger group that's in a large network. And they taught me that, you know, this, this idea that we sometimes kick around of like anyone who's the large group in the large network is the baby factory. And a lot of independent practices and smaller practices sometimes rest on those laurels. And for these folks, that's definitely not the case. They are really caring people. They have a really great culture. They got really good morals, showcases with how we work with them. So they showed me how like you can scale that culture and have it bigger. For some of the folks that we don't work with, I think just culture-wise, I will give a shout out to, to Vios and no secret, we do want to work with them and people like them because they just have a, a pretty, it's very much built for this demographic. There are a lot, there are a lot of practices that are adapting and some better than others, but this one, it's just like, it's just so much in their DNA. So I really mm-hmm. respect them for that. Kind body, I don't know a lot about yet. Gina's going to be on the show later, or maybe she will have already been by the time this episode airs, but I'm looking forward to talking with that about her because I also see them very much focused on an innovative model that is requisite for this current demographic. So I'm okay with giving those people a shout out for, you know, for, for the ones that I feel like aren't is just that anybody that's just not understanding that this is the world that we live in. And right now I'm holding my cell phone, but everything is about adapting to this world and even and the next one which might be on our wrists and the next one which might be in our eyes or any other interface that we have in our homes in our automobiles this is the way we acquire information the way we make purchases the way we make decisions the way we communicate and if we're not diligently adapting and learning those then we just become that old office that never got a fax machine because they couldn't figure out how to hook it up or never got a website because they just didn't ever figure it out. And this world is moving even faster than those two examples. So anytime that I see just sort of a resistance, uh, that does, it does, it does bum me out a little bit because I think like, guys, this isn't, it's not my problem. I, I didn't invent this. This is your problem and I can help you with some of it otherwise there are plenty of people coming from Silicon Valley or Wall Street that are just happy to bypass the whole thing with a new infrastructure and steamroller so I guess anybody that just doesn't understand the gravity because they don't want to put in the learning do you think that's just healthcare in general versus the rest of the industries? Because in my opinion, it seems like, and this isn't an excuse, but it seems like healthcare is always a little bit behind as far as like keeping up with current technological trends. So yes, it is healthcare at large without a doubt because they've been able to hide behind things like regulation or really large bodies for a while, but I'll take it even more broadly than that. It's it's humanity. It is a very human thing to 
just be okay with the status quo and not think about the next things that are coming because what you have right now is working. To learn something new is painful, especially when almost all of the folks that we're talking about do not have extra time. This is something that would be new that something else would have to get cut out or changed, and that's a pain in the neck. And so that, that is a very human thing. I think I'm just super sensitive because I'm from the city of Buffalo, which was a city that got decimated by being okay with the status quo. I'm a Catholic and I, I see nobody but people with hair that's a lot grayer than mine over 870 because that was mm -hmm. an institution that didn't want to change. And I'm really sensitive to how it just sort of sneaks up and so I think for those people that are a year out from retirement, I mean, you're a year out from retirement, what, what can I change? But for those of, of those folks that are only 10 years out from retirement or more, just look how much the world has changed in the last 10 years. And you think it's going to be more or less in the next 10? Do you think it's going to be slower or faster? I would say faster. Just a, a crazy guess there, but... <laughs> I, I do think, and to add on to that though, and be a, a little bit of defense of the healthcare providers is that like, I see, I think now more than ever, doctors are also learning to be business people, right? But you go, they went, both nurses and physicians go into medicine to genuinely take care of people. And now they have to worry about, especially in private practice, like reproductive endocrinology, which is very different than maybe some other specialties that are getting purchased up by big healthcare systems. Like now they have to think about optimizing processes and all these, you know, how to potentially make sure that the patient's happy with a portal because they, you know, they'll judge a whole practice based on the fact that they can't, you know, access an EMR portal on their phone. So that's usually not what's in their DNA. So I can understand why maybe some facet of healthcare has been slower to change. But with that being said, and the other half of me is just too bad. You kind of just have to deal with it. That's why you hire a good CTO, COO, a good CMO, a good marketing agency. Like you delegate when you know where your weaknesses are. That's part of being a good leader. But I do, I kind of wanted to stick up there and just share my opinion with the fact that, you know, if someone, you know, I went into business and marketing and sales because I love talking to people and I love networking and I love all that it, that encompasses. But if someone then said to me, you have to be detailed project manager, <laughs> I would be crappy at it, you know, um, and it would be really hard for me. So just another thought I wanted to throw out there. I totally agree with that. I, the reason why I wrote that series in 2018, I wrote a four part series of just why the fertility practice is no longer sufficient on the model of the, the 20th century. And that's no small part of it because essentially the REI practice of today, we're talking about the second generation. These are the folks that left in the mid nineties. They left the universities and the health system, started their own REI practice. They inherited the general healthcare practice model of the early 20th century, which is doctor owns the business, Doctor hires an office manager. They hire some nurses and some front desk staff. That's the business. And that's the model that they were built on. And right now, it's like, imagine that's the model and we're all playing flag football. And the rules have been, we're, we take the flag and there's no tackling. And then a group of monsters comes onto the field and just starts pacing people because they're playing tackle football. 
And we can say, hey, we don't play tackle. They don't care. <laughs> they're playing tackle football, and they're taking our flag and the ball and running over the field. And I totally understand if, if that isn't the life for someone. I could never do my job and then see patients and understand all of these cases and do 200 retrievals a year. I never could in a million years. It's already a rare enough skill set to be an entrepreneur. It's just, I bring that up partly in defense of when we talk about these fellows coming out of fellowship and say, oh, they don't want to take over a practice because they're not entrepreneurial. No, they don't want to inherit the model that you've inherited because they understand how the game is being played today. By game, I simply mean the competitive landscape of serving patients in the ways that they are now demanding to be served. And so I completely agree with you that if anybody sells equity of their practice or for those fellows that don't want to go into owning their own practice, I will never fault you for that. That's completely reasonable. For those of us that are saying, yes, we're going to own our own businesses for the next however many years, then this is the game that, that we're playing or, or the landscape that we're in. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. No, I agree. It's just, it's the way the world's moving and it's, you, if you like it or not, you just have to keep up with it. If you want to be, if you want to be positioned as like the best and brightest clinic, other people don't always want to be positioned that though. I think we talked about that separately as well as that some clinics want to grow at this rapid rate and others are very comfortable just growing this standard three to 5% a year with just the natural increase of population that needs fertility treatment. 
So it's very interesting to, to see people have very different goals and desires on how to grow their practice. Yeah. And, and everything that I've said, you know, for the last five years, most people still aren't hurting yet. I think I'm starting to see more people come to us where we're looking at their volumes and starting to see, okay, now, now you're starting to hurt a little bit and the economy's really good. That should be a, a bulb going off. But I think most of the folks listening are still probably doing pretty well and they haven't adapted at all. And it's simply because the demand for fertility services is through the roof and the supply of providers and clinics that can serve them is much smaller that even though the largest groups and the new players are gaining share very disproportionately, I still don't think it's hurting most providers. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. What are some of your thoughts about anything, especially on the West Coast, the huge influx of patients coming in from Asia and from overseas? How do you see that, if at all, changing the dynamics of the market? Well, it has to be changing the dynamic of the market somewhat, right? Because my hypothesis on how it would be changing would be that it's probably sucking up more doctors to that area because there's more demand. So California is already high demand state, or excuse me, is already a a high recruiting state and probably even more so for that reason, especially because not only are there more patients and more cases, but also relative to each case, typically more profitable because you have these international patients with so many needs. So that would be my guess. I've never looked into to see if that is actually the case. From a public relations standpoint, I do think that we really shouldn't ever be doing anything that we can't justify in front of a press conference and also haven't justified for a long time. In other words, if somebody finds out about us doing something, they should be finding out about it from us, and we should be able to justify that in our own hearts because we think it's the right thing. And so if there, that might very well be the case for a lot of these groups that are serving certain populations. As long as they can do that, fine, and I think they should because the alternative is, wait, hang on a second, IVF costs a year here because you're bringing in all of these patients and there's an eight-week waiting list because you're helping someone have a specific sex or you're providing them services that are illegal in their country and, uh, you know, we can't even see a specialist or if we do, we're paying our life savings and putting on a second mortgage on our house. So I do think that any of these things that, that we do in our field, we have to be able to say why we're doing it. And so I want to put people on notice for that. And if, if it's, I don't know that that's necessarily a change, but I'm just always expecting the Huffington Post or the New York Times or the LA Times to run some controversial story like about our field, about one of my clients, about one of my friends. I'm just always expecting that. And so if I feel a lot better knowing that I have already answered any of those objections morally to myself, to my patients, to my community, and I do see that as being a snare that could get somebody caught up. I think that's a completely fair statement. 
That's a good life rule in general, right? Even nowadays, you know, you see people's text messages now, somehow if they're enrolled in a scandal, now they're all over the news media. And you're like, man, people should really remember that those text messages or, you know, whatever you, all the things that you just said as well, you know, if they're put on in front of uh, the public, how would that make you feel? Or do you, would you always feel like you're doing the right thing? Just a good life rule, Griffin. Thank you for that. It's the way I behave at a lot of the social events in our field, right? There's nothing that I'm also doing a great idea. That, that if I saw it on video that I would be like, like my, my family and friends, my <laughs> clients, they already know that I'm a fun guy. I like to dance, but I have never, ever gotten any kind of drunk to where I'm out of control. I, I do not put my hands on other people. I really behave a certain way. And I think that's because I'm just always counting on somebody putting something on the internet. And if I had to say to my, my grandma, I was on the dance floor getting down to uptown funk <laughs> at a social, event. I'm totally okay with that. She knows that I do that, right? My employees know that I do that. My clients know that I do that. But if there's something where like he's a different person than he portrayed over here. I guess I'd probably be naive to say that I could accomplish that a hundred percent of the time, but I'm, I am hyper vigilant of it. No, I think that's a smart thing in general. You, um, you talk to, so not, I always see you at all. Like we were saying earlier, resolve ARM, ASRM, you always do a nice job of, of going to the conferences and doing a nice job networking you obviously have multiple clients, multiple friends in the industry. As like a, a marketing, fertility marketing expert, like what do you think will be the trends and what will be the fertility landscape in five years or 10 years, let's say, whatever time frame you want to choose? What will be the major things that are different from what's happening today? So when I make predictions, I try to just look as opposed to saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. I say, here's what I'm seeing now that doesn't show any sign of slowing down. So one Wait, thing, that I, I think it was 2016 or 2015, I wrote like, Instagram is the thing that you need to, to figure out. It wasn't because I just had a feeling about Instagram. It was because I looked at how patients were using hashtags and I looked at just how that community was growing. And I said, here it is. This is where they are. And so for the next five years, what I'm seeing now is that we finally have a group of doctors that are native to social media. It is their DNA. It's how they communicate with people. And I, in my opinion, they're already the thought leaders of the field to the public. They might not all be the ones that are on stage at ASRM or those handful of people that we associate with the thought leaders that have been around a long time, but in the public's eyes, they already are. And so I see more of that happening. You know, we were just looking at them and, and they're all female that I can think of. Maybe, you know, there, maybe there'll be a couple that uh, I'm just haven't thought of, but my team and I were looking and we thought, wow, this is a hundred percent female list right now. So I do see that also happening as long as we're just talking about that. I see more practices positioning themselves as female only groups which means that I think that there will be, I don't know if there will be more male only groups or just more largely male groups, 
with with maybe one female doctor, but I, I just see that happening more as well because if you have female only groups, then by default, depending on what the percentages are, you might have you might just end up with male only groups. So I see the divide could get more split, but at, at the very least I do see the positioning of female uh, only doctors being used more. I think that some of the folks right now that are doing mobile fertility testing are gonna lead the way. I just think that convenience is everything. And to the extent that you can come to someone and not have them come to you, that's a major advantage. So I see more mobile care, more more brought to patient care. Are you and referring to like modern fertility type situation where you have at-home tests and then they come to the doctor being like, oh my gosh, modern fertility told me I had a low AMH. What do I do? Are you referring to companies like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm very interested to see what will happen with that model as well. I don't know who will win that race in terms of who the players are actually doing it or how it will be incorporated with different groups, but that delivery of care is absolutely demanded by the market. I agree. I've, um, I'm now living in San Francisco, and we... It is so funny to live here, Griffin, because I'm from Chicago and the markets and, you know, Chicago is a major city. I mean, the type of patient that comes in to a San Francisco clinic with the amount of coverage they have here, the amount of money that's available in this area. I mean, these patients demand like everything to be convenient. And I've never really seen that to this level before. So it's very interesting. And, you know, the companies like Modern Fertility and others are, are located usually in this area. So um, very interesting to see like a slice of the future living here is what it feels like. But I did interrupt what you were saying, so my apologies. <laughs> those, those are my, my biggest uh, predictions, but that one of just what patients demand is not going to be any more lenient in the next five years. I can promise you that. And it, it mm -hmm. is not, it has not gotten any lenient in the five years that I've been here. And you just see it, the expectations are a certain way. And I don't think that all of them should be met the way that I don't, I don't think that they're fair, but the onus is on the clinic, on the provider, on the group to reset those expectations. Those expectations might not be your fault, but they are your problem. That's what people are coming with. So the high level of expectations in terms of speed, response time, uh, and how people are, are spoken to, you know, making them feel like it wasn't just, uh, oh, your, your test was negative, goodbye. Um, right. I don't know what adjective I would use to that, but that's the expectation of the patients in five years. Is there any current, I guess this is kind of the same question, but a little bit of a, a twist on it. Is there any current void in the industry where you think like you want to shake people and be like, come on guys, like why haven't you figured this out yet? I know you and I, again, we've had many conversations prior to this podcast, but we've off, we talked about a while ago, the fact that infertility, you could not really book your own appointment online that feature on websites very often, but that is just a, a form to fill out and then folks call you back. And we all know that doctor schedules are very tough in this industry. It's changing. One thing often depends on the next in terms of scheduling. 
so that would be like my example. Like, do you have any, anything that you feel like is a, is a void and you would like it to be filled? And if you can think of one, who do you think would be best positioned to fill that void? I can't say who I think the best positioning is. Okay, I do because I do talk with some people about this because this is a problem that I want to that I want to work on that I'm not going to be able to do by myself. There's different people that I think have a shot. I think if they try to do it without me, they're going to tough it up. And I think it's going to take a lot of us to really, really try to solve this problem as opposed to just let's come up with a product and launch it because there's just so many ways that that second scenario can go wrong. But if we can actually solve it then we can make so many people's lives easier. And what you're talking about is essentially where the EMR and what would be a CRM all come together. And the tip of that iceberg is just patient scheduling. But ultimately, if we look at our patient journey, we've got mapped out. We have it in our company. We talk about it every week of all of these different little points in these swim lanes where somebody can become a patient or not. You talked about some of them in the beginning of the episode. But all of these different points are places that, that people can fall off. And you'll sometimes hear people say, well, the people that, that schedule online, they have a higher cancellation rate. And sometimes people say, well, I don't know that the cancellation rate is higher for people that schedule online, but it's definitely gotten higher with these millennials. Should we charge them? Should we, et cetera? It's all because we, have, we don't have the system to nurture and move somebody from next from one point to the next. And the reason why I say I can't solve it myself is because it definitely, that solution extends into the EMR somewhere. It also, it's more than just a CRM, in my opinion, although it, it also serves as, as, you would have a customer relationship management, patient relationship right. management in our case, software that, that helps on our end, but on the patient side, it's just, they have to be able to do things in real time. They have to be able to schedule in real time and move to the, to the next step on their digital devices. And so I guess we can suffice it to say is like, oh yeah, it's, it's new patient scheduling. It's new appointment scheduling, but that really is just one application. The reason why we can boil it down to new appointment scheduling is because anyone under 35, and this is barely a blanket statement, almost anyone under 35 hates using the phone to call and talk to a stranger. And that behavior is aging up. And for people that are under age, let's say 27, whatever you want to call it, won't do it. They would rather just email you back and forth, not ever schedule an appointment through your contact form. And so that real-time scheduling is definitely a problem that we have to solve. But I just think that the reason why we haven't is because it's tied in all the things. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a great point. That's just like the tip of the iceberg. It's really just making a more cultivated experience for the patient, you know, thinking more patient-centric rather than you know, this is my clinic and I have to do it this way because this is the way I want my schedule. Is there any other or voids in the industry? I know I kind of gave you that example, but is there anything else that you're able to share? Or anything that like really frustrates you that you would love to see people kind of rethink? I know I have one. <laughs> From a marketing side? Yeah. 
I think that ultimately there, there just needs to be more in different seats delegated in the practice. Maybe if we're just talking about fundamental problems, like we talked about inheriting the model of the generalist practice from the 20th century. But the way a business is run is that there's a visionary at the top, there's an integrator that helps the visionary implement. And then there's three core functions of a business, sales and marketing, finance and legal, and operations. In our case, we might split up operations into lab and clinic. Even in the very largest of enterprises, those core functions are never split more into seven. That's really it. You've got a person at the top who's the visionary who's responsible for thinking of future value. You have the integrator that helps them implement. And then you have people responsible for finance, legal, sales, marketing, operations. And very often, especially in smaller practices, we have one person in charge of all of those, or they're in charge of maybe like four or five of those seats. And the reason why we keep getting into more trouble is because there isn't somebody who's responsible for looking at future value. Somebody has to consider the future value of the practice because there will always be more that comes onto the plate. We do not have more hours in the day. We do not have infinite resources. And the visionary needs to be able to say, hey, we're not doing this anymore. This is what's getting cut out. This is what's replacing this. And doing it with such anticipation that it isn't crisis mode. So I do think that this issue needs to be solved. And to be frank, I think we are seeing it solved by the acquisition that's happening in the field. I think that's no small part of why this is happening because otherwise the doctors don't have an exit for this practice that they built for 20 years. Mm -hmm. There's not a new group of docs that wants to take it over for the reasons that we talked about. And so what they can do is sell their equity to a larger group who does have that structure in place. So I don't know if that's, I don't think that's the answer that, you're looking for the one that I'm obsessed with right now is just the digital contact um, and maybe adding chatbots and, and artificial intelligence of to help people move around that mm. that navigation. That's still my main answer, but this idea of how the practices need to be structured in order to, to compete and adapt, I think we are seeing that being solved by acquisition for good or for bad. And I don't think it has to be that way. What are some of your thoughts about all, you know, I think the latest conversation at PCRS was a recent acquisition that happened and that seemed to be kind of like the talk of the industry. But what I've seen is that that can be great for some markets, but at the same time, that's actually allowing these smaller independent practices to have a great platform to stand on and say, hey, like, I am that small guy that's going to give you a personal touch. You're not going to feel like a number. And some people are very attracted to that. So in some ways, it's giving those people an opportunity to differentiate themselves. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, it sounded like you were saying that the acquisitions are a very good thing for the doctors to give them a chance to get, you know, have a future set. Do you have any thoughts on if that's a good thing for the industry? Well, I don't think that they're good in a vacuum. I think they can be good for that reason. I think they could also be bad. I, I think it was my last blog, but last two blog articles, I'd write a lot more about that in detail of, of in what cases it would be bad, in what cases it would be good. You're talking about the possible marketing advantage and, and just other types of attention from the industry advantage that independent centers then and would have. And 
I think yes, but they really actually have to do it. And what I very often see is, is that smaller centers believe that they have that advantage, mm. but they don't. And some, some of them do, some of them very much do. And that, that example that I gave you, that team that we really like working with, like that's them. But there are other people where it reminds me of when I used to sell to restaurants, when I sold radio ads, they would all say, oh, the, the chain restaurants, they don't have the service. They don't have the quality of food. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. if, you, if you stand outside and talk to the customers, they don't have a different opinion about that. They think they're, they're getting good services. And I gave that example of the large clinic that they really are awesome. And sometimes some of the clinics that I see the least likely to adapt are the ones in small markets with very little to no competition because there ain't nothing lighting a fire up on them. And so sure. I do I do think it can be if it's real. If you really are like this, is, we're a boutique practice and we can demonstrate it because this is our culture. We know you by name and you can actually demonstrate that. But if I come into your practice and you have a like lousy culture of office personnel that don't like working with each other, that aren't great to the people, that the doctors just coming in and up, oh, here, do this. And, and then, you know, the nurses don't like each other. And one of them is a, is a cancer because they didn't hire Monica Moore to tell them which one needs to be fired. <laughs> if, if you have all of that going on, then you can't just say we're the, we're the boutique practice. To be a boutique practice, you really have to be a boutique. And there are far more that say they are than actually are. So short answer, yes, the opportunity is there. The long answer is there's far more people that think that they have that advantage, but the patient is the one who decides. And they decide in front of everybody on social media and review sites. Seriously. And uh, no, I think that's a really good point. That actually made me rethink a little bit about how I perceive the smaller practices. So that being said, this is the last question, Griffin, because I know you have many, many marketing problems to solve today. Um, For those that are listening that like know a little bit about you or maybe want to even like doctors, nurses, office managers that want to potentially use you guys or talk to you about your marketing services, like why Fertility Bridge? Like why Griffin Jones would make them want to choose you versus all the different people out there offering marketing? It's because they want help with the larger problems that we talked about. If you just want somebody to do your Facebook post, go get an intern. Or if you just want somebody to build a website, there's thousands of agencies that can do that. If you really want to adapt your practice in the ways that we were talking about and marketing being the forefront of what that positioning looks like. And we're the only ones that are taking the reps that we are, right? We're the only ones that are only in reproductive health. I think there are some people that might have other clients in, in this field, but we're the only ones that this is just all we do. We talk about that, those swim lanes of how somebody goes from being a complete stranger to a successful patient. And then every time we fix one little issue, we're on to the next one because it's never ending. To your point of all of these different things in the practice of how somebody needs to have their needs met in order to go all the way through and be a successful patient, it's just constantly ongoing. We're the ones taking the rep. And for us, we have broken out the system in the ways that we talked about the goal in the first place. We talked about the strategy. We talked. didn't really talk about too much about strategy. We talked about goal. The next Part of that after that is strategy. 
the next thing after you had your strategy would be to have a project that is the most effective in reaching that goal from the strategy and then moving on to continuous improvement after that. That is the system that works. If you set your goal, you create a strategy for it, do the thing from the strategy that proves you can get results, and then you keep going and iterate. If you do it in that order, it's successful. And we don't bundle that all together. At any point, somebody could move on to the next phase by themselves or with someone else if they didn't think it was a good fit or they just got what they wanted from us. And so I just don't think there's any reason not to do the goal diagnostic. We set it up in such a way where it's a few hours of someone's time. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a small investment. We tell people on the website, right, what we're going to ask of you and, and what's involved. And it is really important to sit down with your leadership team. I think every single clinic should do that. And, uh, and it's, it's helpful to have a third party do that. So we make it pretty easy just to say, let's do this one thing. If it's not a good fit for the next phase, that's fine. But a few hours and a few hundred dollars or whatever the investment ends up being, because it will be more expensive in the future, but just making it just so easy to have that one thing. I just don't think there's any reason that someone in the fertility appeal would not do it. Would you say the goal diagnostic is almost like a patient initial consult? Like you just come in, talk about your goals, get kind of diagnosed, and then what everyone chooses to do after that is up to them. Whether the patient chooses to do IUI, IVF at their center or elsewhere is up to the patient. Would you say like a fair comparison? That's what I tell people. You need AMH testing, FSH testing. If we're talking about uh, right. if we're talking about a heterosexual couple semen analysis for the male, you need, and then you have an initial consult. And so someone can ask you, like, what is it going to cost for me to have a baby? Or what's it going to entail? How long is it going to take? You don't know any of those answers until you have that first round of, of tests and meetings. And it's... Someone might need gestational carrier for if they want to have several different children and, uh, you know, they need donor gametes and somebody else just might need an IUI, right? Like it's, you really cannot, so it doesn't, and it doesn't matter if you do need the five gestational carriers and donor gametes and if you can't afford it if you don't know the answers, the first thing you need is like, is what are the answers and where are we going? So we, we do that up front. get those answers first. It doesn't matter what you might need in the future. You need those first couple answers to figure out what the next step is. The, it, it goes in that order, goal, strategy, most effective project, continuous improvement. Love it, Griffin. I always love chatting and picking your brain and maybe one day we'll do a part two with me, with someone else, who knows? I I would be very happy to have that. I'm glad that it was you that was interviewing me because you've been in so many corners of the field and you really know what I'm talking about. And so you can answer both just like ask better questions, but also help me bring the thoughts out as I'm having them. So Stephanie Linder, thank you for being so kind to come on and interview me. No, I love it. Anything else you wanted to share with people or any last thoughts? Maybe this is my time just to tell everybody how grateful I am. I'm so, so many people have actually become close friends. I look and I, I've got like half of the field in my cell phone and I text probably, you know, a quarter to half of those people pretty regularly. 
and I uh, and, and a few have become really good long-term friends and I just want to be useful. Owning a business is kind of like just this ultimate way of gauging your usefulness because the market shows you how much it's valued in terms of dollars and cents, but I really need to feel useful. And I'm able to do that when people let me work on their problems that let my team come in that collaborate with us that want us to help them. And so for everybody that's given us those at bats, I'm exceptionally grateful. That's awesome. I feel like that's a great way to end an amazing podcast. Thanks, Griffin. Everyone go up and say hi to Griffin at the next conference. I'm sure you'll be wearing some kind of colored pant, right? So they'll find you easily. (laughs) You know where to find me. Thanks, Steph. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Griffin. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.